everyone, and welcome to this particular day, this observance of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a pleasure to be here with you through the magic of technology. have to admit, actually, I'm just a tiny bit envious because this is clearly pre-recorded, and I'm here in the studio, and it is not currently the Feast of Tabernacles while I'm here, though it is for you where you are. And so I'm sort of envious. I wish I could kind of crawl through the camera to be wherever you are and experiencing the Feast of Tabernacles as well myself. But I appreciate these opportunities to do these sermons ahead of time because though it is not currently the Feast of Tabernacles for me as I record this, it has been in my mind as I have been working with and preparing this sermon. So maybe I should say uh, thank you. I pray that you're having a wonderful Feast of Tabernacles so far, whether it's just a little past or a lot. Uh, if you're out somewhere at one of our feast sites, I hope you're enjoying it. Uh, the millennial environment and the fellowship and the opportunity to spend your second tithe and get a taste of that kingdom to come. Uh, if you're at home, if you're a shut-in and you're observing the Feast of Tabernacles there, I pray that your fellowship with God has been something special so far and that it is a truly a beautiful feast for you as well. Uh, the topic I want to talk about today is related in a great way to Dr. Meredith's strong desire that we build a greater atmosphere of faith in the church. If Dr. Merritt has been consistent about anything in his ministerial career over the last several years, it has been the strong indicate, the strong uh, statement, the powerful pushing that he has done concerning an atmosphere of faith that the church needs more faith. We need to grow in faith. God needs to be more real to all of us. And the Feast of Tabernacles gives us a beautiful opportunity, really a unique opportunity to make that faith stronger in the sense that it's an opportunity to see the kingdom to come more clearly. It's a time when we should focus on it in a special way. What God is doing in the world, what Jesus Christ plans to bring to this world and the role that you and I can play in being a part of that. We have an opportunity during this Feast of Tabernacles to make those things more real. Where we see that millennium to come with an eyesight that is beyond the vision of our eyes and is something deeper, that sees something as more real than the world around us. And we should take advantage of that and really just grab it with both hands. Try to see that future more clearly and more truly. And I pray that all of us, this Feast of Tabernacles, are doing exactly that. So the vision we have of the kingdom to come at the end of this feast is greater and clearer and deeper and richer and more vibrant than it was at the beginning of this feast. Uh, and that's part of my goal in the sermon today, to help really draw out that contrast between the world to come and the world today. And I'd like to start by turning to Isaiah chapter 61. This is a scripture that has a particular turn of phrase that maybe I had never read it before. I guess that's possible. I like to think that I'd read it, but when I did read it not too long ago, actually it's been, I think, a, a couple of years or so, when it, when it first grabbed me like this, ah, this turn of phrase just really got my attention. I just, I'm a wordsmith. It's, it's part of my job. It's what I do. And there's a great turn of phrase that, that got inspired uh, through the, uh, the mouth or pen here of Isaiah in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 61, and let's read verses 1 through 3 together. Isaiah 61, starting in verse 1. 
we read, The Spirit of the Lord Eternal is upon me, because the Eternal has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. A, 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 a series of uh, verses that a lot of us are probably familiar with, that we may have heard in a variety of contexts, certainly in a festival context. Uh, beautiful things. Jesus Christ himself talked about these very verses during his earthly ministry. Continuing with verse 2, he says, "...to proclaim the acceptable year of the eternal and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes." the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the eternal, that he may be glorified. Reading this passage is just a handful of years ago and coming across that collection of words, those three words, beauty for ashes. Ah, oh, the word picture I think was just amazing. It just it just impacted me in a way. What a beautiful, simple summary of exactly what God through Jesus Christ and through his glorified people are going to do with this world. This world is in ashes, and God is going to give the world beauty for its ashes. And that's what I'd really like to talk about today. My goal is that we see God's kingdom more clearly, and sometimes something is seen more clearly by means of contrast. And so what we want to take a look at today for this sermon is the ashes that mankind is making of today's world. We want to contrast that with the beauty that God is going to give for those ashes in tomorrow's world. And that's the title of the sermon today, Beauty for Ashes. Now, we may not realize, I hope we do, if not, you're about to, God does care about beauty. God isn't all just about logic and power and all these other things. He does care about beauty. Uh, let me give you kind of an example, at least an example to me. If you look in the book of Genesis and chapter 1, when God was creating the world, Genesis and chapter 1, And it's interesting, uh, God has made, remade really the world. It was in chaos, in a sense it really was ashes, uh, the rebellion of Satan, the devil, the conflict there, a devastated world, Tohu and Bohu, which God, over the course of six days leading up to his Sabbath, remade and made something beautiful. And at certain stages in that creation, he says that he made such and such and it was good. He made such and such something else, and it was good. He said it was good, it was good, it was good. He actually only gets to one point where he says it's not good. A lot of people don't really think about that. There's a point in the recreation there where God actually says something isn't good. It's actually not in chapter 1. It is in uh, chapter, chapter 2. We have where God has created man, but he hasn't yet created woman. He's created Adam but he hasn't yet created Eve. And it's only at that point, he says actually in chapter 2 and verse 18, 
It says, And the eternal God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So here he had said, Good, 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 good. And then he makes man and then not yet woman, really half of humanity. And he says, You know, it's not good like this. There's something else needed. Then he makes woman. After both parts of mankind are created, then we actually have to go back to see the statement. We see in chapter 1 in verse 31, it says in verse, uh, chapter 1 verse 31, Then God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So he makes things good, 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 and then he makes man Oh, not really good yet. Then he makes woman too. The capstone in that way, everything is completely created. And then he says, ah, this is very good. And then that day ends and then begins the seventh day, the Sabbath, a gift to mankind made for us, truly, fully completing what God intended to do in those seven days. Now, it might just be me, but, you know, I personally think women generally are more beautiful than men. Call me crazy. Uh, between the two sexes, we tend to be the hardier stock, the stockier stock often. Uh, you know, we're, we're made to be uh, nicked by the chisel here and there. Uh, women just generally are more beautiful. Uh, you know, you look at Adam's response in chapter 2 and verse 23, where it says, And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You get the sense that Adam was very pleased, that Adam is very happy with, uh, you know, it's interesting. There's this other translation of the Bible that's out there. It's, it's, I call it a translation. It's not actually a translation. It's a butchering, if you will. There's all these versions of the Bible where people are trying to make it more accessible to people by making the language more accessible. But in some of these cases, it's not more accessible. It's an atrocity. It's just a butchering of the beautiful words of the Bible. But one of these stands out that I had actually read a long time ago. A horrible version. Do not buy this version of the Bible. I, I can't exactly remember the name of it. I think it was called The Word on the Street. I'm not entirely sure. That alone might give you an indication of what kind of translation it was. But in that particular translation, if I recall, it has Adam coming to Eve. And what they write is it says, And Adam came to Eve and he said, whoa, now we're talking. Uh, and then it leaves it at that. And it's like, that's not what he said. There's so much packed into this beautiful statement that to summarize it as just, whoa, now we're talking, just misses the theological and doctrinal richness of what Adam actually says. And yet at the same time, I have to say I wouldn't be surprised if that is what Adam thought. It's like, whoa, now we're talking. You know, chimpanzees and giraffes and that's all great, but this is what I'm talking about. This is someone beautiful to spend the rest of my life with. God does care about beauty. It makes a difference to him. You know, if you think about it, did God have to make the world beautiful? Did God have to make Eve and half of mankind to be a beautiful version of our race? He didn't have to, did he? You know, God didn't have to make a sunset something beautiful. He could have made it just something pretty generic. I mean, the sun has to go come up and it has to go down and the days have to start at sundown. It could have been something pretty technical. No special colors on the horizon. No beautiful beams of light. Uh, it could have just, the sun could have gone down and disappeared over the horizon. And it could have been just sort of a fact. 
But God didn't do that. God filled his creation with beautiful sights for the eyes. You take a look at a good sunset. Well, I'm not saying there's bad sunsets, but one in which all the glorious colors of that sunset are on display, lighting the area around you in a special way, reflecting off of the clouds. It's a beautiful moment. There's something in us that, that relates to that moment. I consider certain parts of the world like Hawaii. I wish I had been. Some of you watching this video have actually been to Hawaii. I, I haven't had that privilege. But I've seen your pictures on Facebook and I have envied you very much. Hopefully not crossing into covetousness. That would be an issue, wouldn't it? But I've seen these beautiful pictures of these Ugh, these cliffs that are gorgeous and just the vistas, the views of the water and the tropical plants and trees and the forest, even the volcanoes, as terrifying as some of them can be, there's a majesty that's there. God made his world a beautiful world. You know, mountains didn't have to look beautiful. They didn't have to be something inspirational that stirs the soul, but they are. You know, in uh, uh, one of our songs here in America, and I realize that many of you watching this are not from America, but there's a line in, in one of our uh, traditional songs that we sing. We talk about purple mountains majesty. Uh, there's something about the sight of a mountain peak that just does stir the heart. It stirs the soul. God could have made the world simply functional, but he didn't. He made it something beautiful. Because God cares about beauty. God himself must be a majestic uh, individual to see with our own eyes. And one day, God willing, we will, you and I together, be able to see him with our own eyes. He did make it a wonderfully functional world, but he also made it a beautiful world. God cares about beauty. And I like to imagine what that must have been like with Adam and Eve there at the end of creation uh, as they were entering the Sabbath day and the sun was going down. And who knows what they may have had access to? Who knows the creatures they may have looked out uh, in the waters, kind of fish leaping out of the water perhaps for joy? Uh, what kind of animals must have strode across the landscape? There must have been quite a variety because God had brought uh, all the varieties of animals to Adam to be able to name. And maybe they spent the Sabbath with him there, he and his wife, and this beautiful land and this beautiful earth just filled with such potential and visual joy. But what have we done with that? Starting with them, what have we done with that? Mankind has taken the beauty of God and has turned this world to ashes. Has taken that beauty and just turned it to ashes. Well, you know, let's turn to Matthew chapter 24. Again, part of our goal in this particular sermon is to comprehend better the beauty of the world ahead of us, the beauty of tomorrow's world, by seeing it in contrast. You know, these are the fall festivals. And there's a reason that God does the holy days in the order he does. Not, there's certainly the historical order, because certain things have to happen first. But there's something about appreciating the lessons of the feast after we've experienced the lessons of, say, the Feast of Trumpets uh, or in the Day of Atonement. We read, and we won't review in detail because if this is the feast, then you should have reviewed these things previously, actually during the days of the Feast of Trumpets and during the Day of Atonement. 
but we read of what mankind brings the world to and what God has to deal with. In Matthew chapter 24, what does man do with the world? We see the climax of man's involvement with the world here in Matthew chapter 24 and starting in verse 21. We read here, Jesus Christ tells us, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. Before mankind enters the real utopia, not the fantasy, but the realness of the rule of God's kingdom on earth for a millennium, he's brought the world to the brink of destruction, a level of destruction and terror and harm such that the world has never seen up to that day. Uh, Take a look in verse 22 right after that. It says, And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. No flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Mankind brings himself to the edge of cosmic oblivion. Destruction of himself as a species, as a creation of God. Destruction of all life on earth. Destruction of the planet. Mankind brings himself to the very brink of that. Through his own wanton sin and hungers and desires, unbound and unleashed. Mankind brings this world to complete and absolute destruction, which God thankfully cuts short. It's interesting in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 18, God talks about saying, actually I wrote down the quote, it says that God would destroy those who destroy the earth. You know, we ravage this planet at that time, that we are destroying the creation that God has given us as a stewardship, something that we could enjoy for our own blessing, that we could cultivate and make beautiful. But instead, mankind ravishes that earth. And God says in Revelation 18 that he will destroy those who destroy the earth. Let's actually turn, though, to Revelation chapter 16 and read something more specific. Revelation chapter 16 And I'm not going to read all of these passages. It would actually be a little depressing. Uh, But also, you probably went through these as the Feast of Trumpets was approaching or perhaps even during the Feast of Trumpets, um, uh, that feast itself. In Revelation in chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 4. uh, We're talking about the angels that are pouring out uh, these bold judgments between uh, the events of trumpets and the actual putting away of Satan the devil. Uh, We read in this particular case, we're going to start with the third bowl. It says in verse 4 of Revelation 16, Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Ah, Can you imagine the rivers and springs of the earth, these sources of beautiful crystal clear water, at least they were meant to be, becoming just blood, becoming blood. Verse 5, John says, And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and the prophets and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just 
do. That's important. The condition on which, uh, sorry, the condition that is inflicted on the world in these bold judgments, it's not just something random. God connects what he's going to do to the world to the actions of mankind itself. This is mankind's just due. Uh, and it absolutely has to be terrible. If you go earlier in verse 3, uh, it says, this is the second angel. It says, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature died. Have you ever seen scenes? I have seen some scenes where a lot of sea life has died, and it's just floating on the surface. And it says, every living creature, all these things just dying and rotting on the surface of this blood-filled sea. Uh, you go on, let's uh, look at verse 17. Let's jump ahead a little bit. Again, we're not going to read all of this. It's, we're going to get to focus on something better here pretty soon. Uh, verse 17, it says, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple in heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. That's important. We've been here for a good while, a good 6,000 years, and there have been powerful earthquakes that have occurred in the world. But none will have ever been like this. How powerful is it? It is phenomenal. We can continue. It says in verse 19, Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. There was not a city in the world that was not impacted by this earthquake. It says, And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. You know what's interesting? If you want to think of stability, if you want to think of some earthly symbol of something stable and dependable that's going to be there tomorrow just like it's there today. A mountain wouldn't be a bad choice. You know, uh, I think it's an insurance company, a Prudential, it's, a, it's an insurance company out there, I might be getting the wrong one, uh, that uses, the. I think it's the Rock of Gibraltar as its symbol, I'm not sure. Why does it use that? Because mountains are steady. You know, if your grandfather saw one and you went to where he went, you're probably going to see the same mountain. And yet this earthquake is so great that if you went to where your grandfather went, you wouldn't find the mountain there anymore. Some of the most powerful symbols of stability and steadiness completely shaken and moved and rearranged, just butter in the hot hands of God's fury. You know, actually, that's what this reminds me of. If you think of mankind and the world that he has built as a, a child working on an Etch-A-Sketch, so you may not know what an Etch-A-Sketch is. It's a small rectangular device where a child can move two knobs and kind of move something around to sort of draw in this kind of silvery sand. And it's actually kind of difficult to use, but you can draw these beautiful, intricate designs. But if you want to erase the design and start over, you just take the toy and you shake it. And if you shake the toy, everything you've drawn is gone. In fact, it's actually kind of frustrating because you can work hard to draw this kind of design in this sort of weird sandy material and then someone bump you and you shake the Etch-A-Sketch and all of a sudden your, your picture is messed up and part of it's erased. 
Well, really what we see happening in these days leading up to the Feast of Tabernacles is that Jesus Christ, God the Father, they take this world where mankind has constructed this terrible enterprise of sin, death, and destruction, and he shakes it like you would shake a child's toy, and all of it is destroyed. With grand cosmic brushstrokes, God paints a new picture on the world and wipes out what mankind has done. And over the course of what you see in this intervention, we have to understand that part of what God does with the world is, in a sense, show us almost what we would have done with it ourselves. Mankind slaughters, mankind butchers, mankind murders. And so what does God give them to drink? The blood that they have essentially chosen for themselves for 6,000 years. Mankind chooses in the end to destroy instead of build. And so God gives them utter destruction. When you really look at what goes on before leading up to the Feast of Tabernacles, it's as if God hands mankind the verge of almost the very world he would have created himself had God not intervened. Mankind is on the verge of creating cosmic destruction, cosmicide, destroying himself, destroying all life on the planet. And God brings him to that point and says, this is what you would have made of the world. Uh, You know, what's actually sad is that what God has to do with the world, you see all of this blood for water, you see cities, every city affected and destroyed, earthquakes shaking the islands and the mountains. That is actually the better outcome. Remember, what is the contrast? If God did not do this, all the things that you learned about during the Feast of Trumpets, all these terrible plagues and these horrific things that come upon the world before the Feast of Tabernacles, what do we learn in Matthew chapter 24? That this, believe it or not, is the better outcome. Because if God had not intervened, if mankind had been left to himself, Jesus Christ says plainly in Matthew 24 what that would have led to. And it would have been the destruction of all life on earth. Left to himself, what would mankind have done with the world before God's intervention if he had not intervened? You know, if you can imagine visitors from space... I'm not saying there are visitors from space, if you could imagine, uh, coming to visit Earth 10,000 years from now, they would have seen this cold husk of a dead planet covered in nothing but ashes and ruin. Not a living thing in sight. Would have been a cold cinder in a colder universe. We would have destroyed ourselves. And so, we look at the destruction that God brings on the world leading up to the Feast of Tabernacles and sadly that's the better outcome because that's what's going to be needed to build a different world. How did we come to that point? How do we come to such a point where our merciful God has to go through such incredible measures to save us from ourselves? Because the things he does are extreme, turning all the waters to blood, all this life dying, all the trees and grass burned up. What in the world happened so that God had to do such things to prevent us from completely destroying ourselves? What was the key? Where did we go wrong? Well, you have to go back. If you want to discover the source of the ashes, 
you have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and a single choice. Now, let's do that now in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we know what God did. If you don't know, it's, it's worth reading the entire story. Don't just read these verses. Can't think of a better thing to do during the Feast of Tabernacles than read your Bible a little more. Uh, but in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to jump into uh, uh, after a number of things have happened. God has created the world. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. He describes it as very good. It's a world of beauty. But in order for God to achieve his purposes with man, he is... Uh, uh, he is reproducing himself in us. He, we're not just created to be human beings. We're created to be part of the very family of God himself. And for God to achieve that, he can make us these wonderful physical analogs, if you will, so that we have a shape and a body. But we have to also grow in character. We have to have a character like God's. And character requires choice. You know, I've often wondered why... why often wondered, might be a bit of exaggeration. I have thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if God hadn't given man two trees? You know, just the tree of the knowledge of good and evil uh, and the tree of life. If he had just had the tree of life and not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we'd also be walking around naked and happy. Uh, not really, because that wouldn't have fit God's plan. Why did God give mankind two trees? Because growing in character requires choice. We have to be able to make choices. And to be able to make choices, mankind needed a choice. So God did make the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he was very plain. He said, don't eat that tree. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you're going to die. And I don't want you to die. I want you to live. Don't pick that tree. But man did pick that tree. Eve ate from it. Adam ate from it. And we see the consequences of that. Now let's jump to those consequences in Genesis chapter 13 and verse 15. Actually, we can read a lot. He talks to the woman first. He's talking about what's going to happen to man and woman and actually even the snake uh, in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, jumping into the middle of, uh, actually getting to where he talks to the woman. He says in verse 15, and I will put, oh sorry, he's talking to the snake, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now the Apostle Paul makes it plain to us that this is actually a prophecy of the coming Messiah, uh, that there is hope actually planted in that verse. Now but let's move to what he says to the woman in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb in the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, uh, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return." 
You know, even Adam, I mean, sorry, Abraham kind of understood that. There's a point in the Bible where Abraham says to God that he understands that he is but dust and ashes. You know, mankind was designed, we were created to join the family of God himself, this sort of upward slope, if you will. And yet through this choice, it would be the opposite. Everything man is, everything man touches in the end simply would come to ashes. You know, it's interesting, and this might be a bit speculative, but even if it is, it's still a good meditation. You know, if Adam and Eve had not sinned, theoretically, what would happen? Well, we would just continue growing and learning, having a choice, making the right choice, uh, until eventually joining the family of God. But with sin, it's not that God's plan changes. Notice God didn't say, oh, you guys sinned, I'm totally doing a different plan. God's plan continues. The devil can't frustrate the plans of God. How they are achieved may change, but the plan stands sure. And so his plan for mankind stood sure. The difference is there's pain in that birth. Between what we are now, between what I am, and between what you are, and the kingdom of God, Paul tells us between now and then, We have to go through tribulation. We have to go through difficulty and trial and pain and tears. We may wish it weren't so, but it is. And that's just like childbirth. You know, it's interesting. I don't think God really punishes for no reason or with no design or thought. Why is it that woman suffers, that it's painful to give birth to children? Well, in a sense, from this choice forward, the birth of God's own children would involve pain and difficulty and suffering. And so there's kind of an analogous logic to the fact that when we give birth to our children, there's pain and there's difficulty and there's suffering. But these things said, this is the point at which the path to beauty became the path to ashes. The rest of the world, all the suffering of mankind, every war we've ever fought, every murder that's ever been committed, every cry in the night in despair and sorrow and pain has its root in this choice. If you consider what Adam and Eve essentially said, they told God, not your will, but mine be done. God made his will plain to them. He told them, do this, this is my will. Please obey me, I've created all of this for your good to nourish you in my instruction and in the light of my path. I'm going to feed you, I'm going to work with you. Here's my will. And given his will very plainly, mankind said, you know what God, thanks, but no thanks. We don't need you. Yes, you've done a wonderful job here, thank you very much, but we don't need you. Please feel free and go do something else in some other corner of the cosmos because we want to do our will. We want to make our own choices about what's right or wrong. Not your will, God, but ours. And if we're honest with ourselves, we all make that choice at certain points in our life. From the time of our birth to wherever you and I are right now, in little ways and in sometimes larger ways, we have made a similar choice. It's called sin. Not your will, God, but ours. And in that choice lies the foundation of this entire world. 
This world of ashes is built on a foundation of telling God, not your will, but our will. That is at the foundation of this horrific world that we have constructed for ourselves. And the result is what happens to us? Not stepping into glory, but ashes. We come back to the dust from which we were created. So robbed of immortality, mankind tries to make immortality out of other things. Uh, we hope to find immortality in a sense through our children. Uh, we do music and art and sculptures and we, you'll have architects devoted to some beautiful building that will be his lasting monument to the world. The world will remember who I am because of this beautiful thing I've created. And in the end, it's all ashes. It's all ashes. There's nothing we can guarantee. We can't guarantee our own lives will be extended forever. They won't be. We can't even guarantee our name will be remembered. And beyond all the beautiful things we create that we hope to have as our legacy, what truly is our legacy? It's a world full of murders. It's a world full of child prostitution and human trafficking. You know, I, I, I help with our uh, team. They, they all seem to work harder than I do at it uh, concerning responding to people on Facebook. You know, people come to our uh, Tomorrow's World Facebook page and they ask questions and comments and we, we try to respond. There's a few of us that go out there and look to see if what their comments are. And there was one fellow I saw, in fact, it was actually just today when I was checking, and it was a, he was commenting on an article about Jesus Christ's return. And he made this comment and said something like, uh, well, man, I hope it doesn't come back for another 75 years. You know, actually, life is pretty good. And I thought to myself, this has to be someone commenting from some privileged place in the Western world. Because that is not the tale of most of humanity. Most of humanity is not in such places where they said, man, I don't care if a Savior comes for the next 75 years. I've got it pretty good. Because that's not the way this life is. It is full of suffering and difficulty. And if it hasn't touched that individual for some odd reason, it will touch him eventually. Without God in the world, which we have evicted from the world, life has no meaning, it has no value, and it has no purpose. And the foundation of the world in which we live right now is nothing but ashes because it's built on this concept of not your will, God, but mine. Mankind has made a terrible place of the world. And if we think about it, it's not just on this kind of cosmic scale. It's not just, oh, we're destroying the planet and, oh, no, we're, uh, our cities are terrible places and there's vast amounts of crime. Consider it on a more personal level. If our foundation is not your will, God, but mine... What happens in our marriages? What happens in our friendships? What happens in our families? What happens in our jobs, in our businesses? You know, without God, whenever we tell God, not your will, God, but mine, our pleasures are nothing but ashes. All of our causes we seek to achieve in the world, nothing but ashes. Our legacies, nothing but ashes. Without God, that is all we have in this world because we've built it on a foundation of not your will, God, but mine. Now, I admire those that have a zeal for fixing the world in some way. And they look around and they think, oh, this is terrible. Let's fix it. Let's do something about it. But can anything really be done if the foundation is still not your will, but mine? Uh, if you turn to Psalm 11 and verse 3, 
I like the simplicity of this statement. I come to it time and again. When you start to see problems as intractable and unsolvable, this verse is a great go-to verse in that regard. Psalm 11 and verse 3. David asks, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It's a rhetorical question because the answer is nothing. If the foundations are ravaged and useless and terrible for building upon, there's nothing you can do. You cannot build upon broken foundations. And the foundation of our world, which is the concept, not your will but mine, it's the worst possible foundation upon which to build a world. It's resulted in every murder, every war, uh, every rape, every theft, everything about our world that we see crumbling around us. We live in a world where even the most basic of concepts, what a man is and what a woman is, is completely gone. We live in a world in which five-year-old boys are confused about whether they're boys or not, and so their parents are contemplating sticking chemicals in those children to prevent them from becoming boys or whatever they were born to be. When studies show that 98% of those children, if they're boys, actually get through puberty and resolve all that on their own. We've lost any kind of common sense whatsoever. We're like a compass in which the needle has been ripped out. Why is the world crumbling around us? Why can't we ever find peace in the Middle East, let alone in our own families and lives and in this world? Because it's all built on a particular foundation. Not your will, but mine. And what we see, at least the way I like to think of it, in the days leading up to what we picture with the Feast of Tabernacles, those things pictured by the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement, is God taking the foundations upon which this world is built and getting rid of them and ripping them out completely, completely removing those foundations so He can lay a new one. Because God will not build this world that we're here at the feast to celebrate on the broken foundations of the old one. He will put in a new foundation, a real foundation, a good and a strong foundation. We actually see that foundation expressed, the way I like to think about it, in Matthew chapter 26. If you turn to Matthew chapter 26, we see Jesus Christ praying to his Father. Jesus Christ will be what? The king, the ruler over all the world of the very kingdom, the very uh, world that we are here to celebrate, that we're here to meditate on, that we're here to think about together during the feast. And we see him demonstrating the foundation of the world that he will bring and build. In Matthew chapter 26, and let's read in verse 38. In verse 38, he's talking to his disciples. He's wanting to pray before his crucifixion. An incredibly stressful time in his life. If anyone could have been tempted to say, God, I can't do this. God, I know what's ahead. I know what's ahead for me. And I just can't. I can't do that, Father. It would have been Jesus Christ. That's not what he says. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 38. It says here that he said to them, 
My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but you will. Jesus Christ says, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Really the very opposite of what Adam and Eve did. Adam and Eve surrounded by comfort and luxury and the life they could, they could want. The kind of life that, frankly, they probably tried to build after they were expelled from Eden. Surrounded by that, they looked at God essentially and said, Not your will, but mine. But the Savior the King of the world to come, our Savior, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, surrounded by the opposite of Adam and Eve, surrounded by a world of pain and suffering and coming torment, looks to his Father and says the opposite. He says, not my will, but whatever you will. He is the one who's qualified to lay a foundation of a new world, a completely different world, a world that we can be a part of if we agree with that foundation. He's going to use that foundation to build a world that will replace the ashes of what we've done with beauty. And let's take our remaining time to look at some of those beautiful things. Uh, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 61. You know when you're talking during the feast, you know you're going to use verses that others have used. Or, I apologize speakers if I'm about to use a verse that you plan on using... But it's the feast. We can stand to go over them more than once. They're beautiful verses. Uh, Isaiah chapter 61. And we're going to see that cities will be rebuilt. What did he do? He knocked all those cities down. But there will be cities. You know, sometimes people think of the uh, millennium like it's going to be nothing but pastures and log cabins maybe or something. But there are going to be cities again. Not like these. Different. Better. Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 4. We read here that God inspires these words. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Cities rebuilt, but rebuilt anew. We're not going to have cities with the kind of slums and poverty and unsafe areas that we have in today's world, our world of ashes. It's going to be something beautiful. You know, I love it when I see a, a creative artist sort of put together some picture of what he thinks a beautiful city would look like. Uh, sometimes artists have no idea and their ideas are terrible. But there are some great artists out there that kind of paint these beautiful, almost utopian cities where nature is sort of woven in with the city instead of isolating you from God's creation. Uh, you know, a lot of glass, so there's a lot of sunlight coming in. Let me be up front. I have no idea what these cities are going to look like. Uh, you know, maybe there's just, you know, math equations on all the walls. I, you know, I have no idea. That's, you know, kind of what I would like. Uh, but what do you think those cities would be like? Take advantage of this feast. If your parents talk to your children, if your children quiz your parents, talk with each other about that. Cities are going to re be, re uh, be rebuilt. You know, the family of God will be encouraging mankind to do the right thing, to build cities the way they ought to be, 
What are those cities going to look like? How beautiful are they going to be? What things would you incorporate in a city in the millennium? It's not going to be the cities of today. Expand your mind, but think about these things. Talk about these things. Jesus Christ tells us that where our treasure is, our heart is there also. Our time and our words are part of our treasure. Share those with each other. Talk about these things. Fantasize a bit about what God will do with this world and how you and I will help people to rebuild these beautiful cities. Uh, Turn to Isaiah 35. Isaiah chapter 35, a little bit over. A lot of beautiful millennial passages in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 35, and we'll read verses 1 and 2. It says in verse 1, The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the eternal, the excellency of our God. Talk about the desert rejoicing. It's going to be so beautiful and so abundant that when you look at it all, you're going to think it's like the land itself is singing a hymn to God because it is so beautiful and gorgeous. Um, Let's look a little bit later as well. Let's go to uh, verse 6. And I want to start in the middle of the verse in verse 6. It says there in the middle of the verse, For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. A beautiful world. Is this going to be the gods miraculous? They're going to say, okay, pop up in these terrible places. I, you know, I could speculate some. We know the earth is going to be shifted around. There's this massive earthquake at the end of the things leading up to this. And it's interesting that mountains have an effect, a great effect, on the land. Uh, you actually have rain shadows where mountains uh, create places where simply rain does not fall. Uh, when, God, when mankind kicked God out of his governance of the world, essentially, and said, you know, God, we don't need you. We can do it ourselves. Well, the thing is, we can't move mountains to make desert land blossom. We just don't have that ability, but God can. He's going to rearrange this. He's going to do whatever it takes to make this a beautiful, amazing place to live. Talk about that. When you see a site in whatever city you're in or wherever you are, you see a beautiful picture, talk about, can we make the land like that one day? Or is that not even going to live up and, and be anywhere close to the beauty we're going to see? in the world to come. I skipped a few verses in this passage for a reason because I want to talk about them separately. Uh, Take a look starting in verse 4. We start in verse 4 of Isaiah in chapter 35. He says here, Say to those who are fearful hearted, Be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. He hasn't forgotten about the people. Verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. You know, amongst the ashes that we've made of our world are ravaged bodies with disease and destruction and injury and death. But in that world to come, that's going to go away. Beauty is going to replace all of those ashes. Surely you know, I know that I know people that I would just, I just wish the hand of God 
would raise them one day. People I see in the world and I see them suffering and think one day that's no longer going to be. Take advantage of the feast and think about those times. You know, I, I like to imagine, and I've said this scenario before, I may have even said it in a recorded sermon because I talk about it a lot, but it's, it's one of my personal um, kind of mental, I don't want to say visions, it's not a vision, but just fantasies, if you will. I imagine it with one of my children. Uh, you can imagine it for yourself or one of your children or someone else you know. But imagine, uh, we know, for instance, that not all nations will come to keep the Feast of Tabernacles during the millennium. At first, uh, some of them will be obstinate. Uh, they may say, we're not going to yield to them. We're not going to come. But eventually, they're, they're going to come. And so imagine perhaps Egypt. The Bible suggests Egypt might be such a place. And so Egypt isn't coming to the Feast of Tabernacles. And, of course, the people are going to be suffering for that. Of course, they will have already suffered leading up to this. But it's not like an entire a nation changes its mind at first. You know, imagine, say, a family in Egypt that does want to come that is beginning in the quietness of their home to sing praises to that Jewish God, if you will, uh, that they heard now reigns in Jerusalem and longing for the day when their leaders wisen up. And their family themselves, they've suffered difficulties. Uh, they might have the scars on them of warfare from the past. And imagine perhaps a young daughter sitting outside, sitting because she cannot walk, uh, sitting because her legs perhaps have been ravaged, by some of these terrible machines of mankind. If you've ever looked into the history and design of uh, landmines, uh, I don't necessarily recommend you do so. It's just, it's just a tale of what mankind, how devoted we are to making ashes of this world. But a lot of landmines aren't designed to kill. Generally, landmines are often designed to maim because from a carnal war perspective, a dead soldier is not as much of a burden on the enemy's army as a wounded and disabled soldier. So they purposefully design machines like this not to actually kill, but to do things like to shred the legs and to do terrible things to slow down an army. I, please don't make me go into more detail because it is horrific. That is the mindset of this world. And so imagine in this scenario where Christ reigns, but not all nations have come yet, this Egyptian girl, a young girl sitting outside her home, uh, placed there perhaps by her family so she can enjoy some sunlight for the day, but she cannot walk herself because her legs are just shredded and damaged by shrapnel. And then imagine someone walking up to her, not necessarily uh, easy to distinguish from others, just as Jesus Christ himself made himself not easy to distinguish even after his resurrection at times when it suited his purpose, and walking up to this little girl and kneeling next to her and simply waving his hand over his, uh, her legs. And with a wave of his hand, those legs become whole and beautiful and pristine. And then looking in the eyes of that girl and saying, Jesus, who reigns in Jerusalem today, has touched your home this day and then maybe disappearing from their sight, and her standing up for the first time in who knows how long and to run in and tell her family about what she experienced, and the family just embracing in joy with tears in their eyes, all that more devoted to being there next Feast of Tabernacles, to celebrate with that God. That is going to happen, brethren. That is real. That is real. We have to see it as if it's more real, because it is, than the world around us. That beauty to come is more real and more solid and more firm 
and definitely coming. It is more real than anything we see around us in this world. That beauty is more real than the ashes. Take the time to talk about those things with each other. Take the time to picture those scenarios. To read these passages and not just let them be words on a piece of paper, but to make them come to life. So we see that more fully and our faith becomes strong. Let's continue. There's going to be so much healing. It's not just going to be a matter of physical bodies. There'll be healing between peoples. Uh, We won't turn there for the sake of time, but in Zechariah chapter 8, it talks about how men from every nation of the world are going to grab the sleeve of a Jewish man and ask him, please take me where the law of your God is coming forth. Take me where I can learn these things. That's in Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 23. They're going to want to know. They're going to want to learn. And grabbing the, hand, the, the sleeve of a Jewish man means something today because there are few peoples on the earth more disparaged than the Jews are today. Can you fathom right now, say some terrorist, a part of Al-Qaeda, or a part of the Islamic State, grasping the sleeve, which really is a sign of humility, grasping just the sleeve of a Jewish man and saying, please take me to your God so I can learn the things that you are learning. Uh, There will be healing between peoples in the world that is coming, tomorrow's world. Turn to Isaiah chapter 19. I love this passage. Isaiah 19, uh, we'll start in verse 24. Verse 24 of Isaiah 19. Oh, sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. No wonder it doesn't look right. Isaiah 19 and verse 24. It says there, In that day Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Eternal of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. You know, three peoples that could be considered enemies so frequently throughout history, they'll be together. They'll recognize the truth of the book of Acts, that we are truly one blood, that God has created all mankind from Adam and really from Noah. You know, we also came from there. That there are these different cultures, but cultures that can, with a right lawgiver in place, actually exist to the praise of God that just because these other people are different than us, we don't have to go and butcher them. We don't have to go and and blow them up and destroy their buildings. We can appreciate the variety that God has put in mankind. If you ever look at a beautiful garden with different kinds of flowers, you know, here's a batch of roses and here's a batch of, of posies and I wish I could name other kinds of flowers, but I have to admit I am flower ignorant. I should have my my wife here. She could do that. Uh, Or Mrs. Hagmeyer. I know she's really good for that. Uh, We have all these beautiful different kinds of flowers. And the result is this beautiful garden with areas of special, beautiful things. And to start to recognize that a flower shouldn't hate a posy because it's different. A posy shouldn't hate a rose, uh, but appreciate the beauty that God has woven into each. You know, there's a a neat passage in Ezekiel chapter 43, speaking of the temple to come, Ezekiel 43, and it's talking, again, turn of phrase, because I'm a wordsmith, I'm a guy that tries to make good words, 
Does that even make sense? Make good words. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 43. Then I really appreciate it when I see something. And I, I just describe my attention. I love the way that, that this was inspired by God. Speaking of that future temple uh, in the millennium, we're reading Ezekiel 43 and verse 7. Just the first part is all we need to read. It says here in Ezekiel 43 and verse 7, it says, He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet. You know, in this world of ashes, the world has tried to distance itself from God and said, stay away from us. We want to live things our way, not your will, but ours. But in that time of beauty, there won't be that kind of distance. Even before God the Father, uh, you know, and all things united at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Creator, is going to say, this is the place of the soles of my feet. A beautiful connection. Maybe it's just me, but I love that phrase. It also makes me think of Zephaniah chapter 3. If you turn to Zephaniah, close to the end of the Old Testament, not quite. Zephaniah chapter 3. And it speaks of this time that's coming. Uh, and it says in verse 17 of Zephaniah 3, it says, The eternal your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I remember the first time I read that. I, I was early as I was attending. And it's just the idea of Jesus Christ, the king of that kingdom, being so full of joy at what he was doing in the world and what he was seeing in the lives of the people he ruled. The peace, the joy, the growth, the contentment that he would burst into song. That he himself would rejoice with singing. You know, again, permit me a bit of a fantasy, but can you imagine a Feast of Tabernacles and in the future, in the millennium, and someone gets up, whether it's a spirit being in the family of God, whether it's a human that we've appointed, regardless, someone gets up and says that they have a special treat ready for all of us for special music, uh, and it is going to be the king himself. The king himself is going to provide special music for the service. Uh, because he did say he came to serve, not to be served. And that isn't going to change in the millennium. It's part of who he is. It's part of the foundation that he lays. And so imagine perhaps it's being broadcast all over the world to those who have sent maybe representatives but haven't come themselves. And Jesus Christ himself sings a song of beauty and joy out of his glorified vocal cords. I can't wait. I can't wait. Our Savior will be present on this earth. What an amazing element of beauty. Really, in a sense, perhaps the ultimate uh, thing of beauty is the family of God will be present. The skies won't really just be filled with a bunch of dirty airplanes spewing filth into the atmosphere, you know, and all the rest. The sky may be filled with members of the family of God. 
You know, turn to Romans chapter 8. This is the last passage we're going to turn to today. I hope it's not the last one you turn to today. You still probably got a lot of day left. You know, you can get some other more Bible reading in. But Romans chapter 8. And while I turn there, I'd like you to note 1 John 3 verses 1 through 3. Because in 1 John 1, uh, sorry, 1 John 3 verses 1 through 3, it talks about how when we're born into the family of God, we're going to see him and we're going to be like him. We're going to see him the way he is and we're going to be like him. And it says in verse 3 of that particular passage that if we have this hope in us, we purify ourselves. Not that it's magic or something, but if you have this hope in you, you can't help but be stirred to do better. You can't help but be stirred to become closer to that God who's going to do this in you and is working this in you and through you. When we're filled with that hope, we're motivated to purify ourselves and to devote ourselves to the God who is doing such a beautiful thing with us and exchanging the ashes that we've made of our lives with the beauty that only He can offer. And it's a beauty the entire universe is waiting for. Uh, in Romans chapter 8, uh, you could read the whole chapter. I, I don't have that much time. I'll read just a few verses. Romans chapter 8, and I'll start in verse 18. The Apostle Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. The universe is waiting to trade in its ashes for beauty. And what Paul tells us right here is the beauty that the universe is waiting to be revealed is you and me and those who are a part of the family of God. It says the entire universe is going to be delivered from bondage, the bondage of corruption, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. It says in verse again, 19, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. You know, today in this world of ashes, every tree you pass is longing for you to become one of the children of God. Every blade of grass as you walk along the sidewalk is waiting for that transformation. When you go out into the night, every star in the sky over your head is longing for that transformation, that revealing of the sons of God calling out, be there, do that, become that, we need you, we want that. The world, the universe, is waiting for the revealing of the beautiful sons of God. Is there any greater vision that can fill our minds or stir us any deeper? I can't, I can't imagine that. You know, those who truly long to be a part of that beautification... Those who truly long to be a part of replacing the ashes of this world with the beauty that God has and longs to bring through Jesus Christ's arrival, the transformation of His people, and thus the transformation of this world. We have a job to do now. 
Because what we're going to do, we're going to take the ashes of this world and replace that with beauty. And those who will be a part of that will be those who are willing to take the ashes of their own life, the ashes of their life that have been a result of telling God from time to time, not your will, but mine, and are willing to give that life over to God and Jesus Christ and allow him to replace the ashes of our own life with the beauty of his, to reproduce in us his life, his mind, his character, and his goodness. Don't let the ashes of this world confuse you or discourage you or hide from you the beauty that God wants to infuse into this planet and this life and this world. Don't let the ashes of this world distract you. And don't let the ashes of your own life that you see there from time to time, which seem to demand your attention, don't let those ashes distract you from the beauty that God wants to build in you. Don't let that happen, brethren. Take advantage of this Feast of Tabernacles to fill your eyes, to fill your mind with visions and thoughts and meditations of the beauty that God longs to bring to this world of the ashes he wants to sweep away and replace with something gorgeous, something amazing, something true, and something right. Let's all of us commit ourselves over the course of this Feast of Tabernacles so when the last great day comes and we're going home, we're not going home the same people who were here. We're going home a people that have been filled with a sharper vision of that kingdom to come with a more true and accurate image in our minds of the beauty of that world that is just beyond our reach, but towards which we are heading. And let's go back to our homes and to our lives with our sleeves rolled up, ready to participate with Jesus Christ in picturing in our own lives now what He is going to do in the future with us. And that is exchanging ashes for beauty.